Well, Oregon landed a commitment from four-star offensive tackle Jaquan McCroy over the weekend. Their class is still in the top 10 nationally, and that could change soon. Here we go. You are Locked On Ducks, your daily podcast on the Oregon Ducks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yes, it is that time once again for Locked On Ducks. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin. Thank you so much for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day, and your number one source to stay up to date with the Ducks. If you have not already, please like, comment, subscribe, rate, review, wherever you listen to or watch this show, which today is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook, official sportsbook of Locked On. Make every moment more. Visit FanDuel.com slash Locked On today to get started. So the recruiting momentum continues for Dan Lanning. We've got a scheduling and home field advantage thing to talk about later in the show. The future of the two quarterbacks, lots to get to, but the class for the Ducks continues to be strong in 2024. Top 10 nationally, still sitting at number eight after McCroy committed, and it has the potential to go higher because there are other big names that within the next couple weeks are expected to come off the board. Now, that's subject to change, right? We're dealing with 17, 18-year-old kids. They've got a lot of different things going on, coaches calling them, school to get ready for, just a million things to prepare for, right? So that sort of stuff can be fluid from time to time. But you look at other names like Kamar Mathuti. You look at other names like Elijah Rushing and say, okay, if Oregon lands commitments from those guys as well, or Justin Williams, a linebacker who who they have a crystal ball for in 24-7, who's uh, one of the top 20, uh, I believe, players in the country at, at, at this point in time. He's a five-star linebacker, big, big-time prospect there. The class can continue to go higher, but other schools are going to get commits too. Other schools are going to rise. I noticed that Oregon stayed at number eight after McCroy committed. Not all that surprised by it because they're not the only team, Oregon, that's having success in the recruiting trail right now. There are other schools. That stuff is going to happen. But staying inside that top 10 range, that's kind of where uh, we would like to be. Also, real quick, uh, as this show is coming out, Dewan Riggs or, or Dejon Riggs, not sure how to pronounce it. looks like it would be Dewan, D-A-J-U-A-N. He is committing today, three-star running back out of the D.C. area. Oregon appears to be in a good spot there. We'll see what happens. Also want to shout out five-star kicker Gage Hurich or Hurich. Not sure how to pronounce that one either. If somebody knows or knows the kid, by all means, shoot it my way. But wanted to give him his due props because he's a five-star kicker and he's an in-state kid in the 2024 class from West Lynn. Last guy who was uh, a pretty highly coveted recruit coming out of West Lynn, at least that I can remember, that ended up choosing the Ducks was this guy named Alex Forsyth. He went on to have a pretty good career as a center. But let's get to a guy who plays along the same position group as Alex Forsyth in uh, Jaquan McCroy. So first and foremost, he is a big fella. Big. And when I say big, I mean he is six foot eight, 365 pounds. I, that 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 size, they just don't make a lot of kids like that. They 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 just don't. Definitely projecting as an offensive tackle here. He's from Clay Chalkville High School in Pinson, Alabama, same hometown as Bo Nix. By the way, I don't know if that played a factor. I just thought it was a cool tidbit and shared it here on the show. He is interestingly enough the first player from the state of Alabama to commit to Oregon in this recruiting cycle which I like 
Because when you look at where the four and five star talent and the kids who go on to, you know, play in the NFL one day or be high level power five starters or major contributors, all American, all that sort of stuff. You have a lot of kids that come from the South because high school football down there, for any of you listening or watching in Oregon right now, it does not look or feel the way that it does when, you know, Lakeridge plays Clackamas, for instance, okay? It is not the same. There are good players that come out of Oregon, but we've talked about with Brian Smith, our our recruiting insider here at the Locked On Network extensively here on the show, that if you're going to recruit well to Oregon, you have to be a grinder as a staff because you just don't have that much in-state talent. And this is the sort of guy that Oregon wants to be able to go down and pull right out of Alabama's uh, backyard. So first player from what is the uh, what is the moniker for Alabama? Like, you know, Washington's like the evergreen state. Um, California and Florida are both like the sunshine state. Is there something for Alabama? The roll tide state? I don't know. I haven't been there before. But anyway, so first player from Alabama in the class. The other schools that were interested, which to me is a really good indicator of kind of what to expect from this kid or how big of a recruiting win it was. This is a really, really good, solid recruiting battle for the Ducks to emerge victorious in. Other teams interested, Arkansas, SEC, Kentucky, SEC, Ole Miss, Auburn, SEC, Georgia Tech, ACC, Tennessee, SEC, and Miami. Did I put Miami last on purpose just to set it up and make it stand out a little bit? Perhaps. Is that me being petty? Not really. It's just me giving credence to the notion, which I know to be true, that some people still kind of feel that way. But I also put Miami in there on a serious note because that is, I think, a great, great sign for Aleek Terry, that he is getting a commit from this guy from the South, big-time prospect, big-time player, and we know what Mario Cristobal and Alex Mirabal can, redu- can do recruiting offensive linemen. And for Elite Terry and Dan Lanning and the rest of the staff, whoever else was involved, for them to have gotten this one done, I think is a really, really good sign for him at that, uh, at that spot. So this is a top 200 player, according to 24-7 Sports, who also have him as uh, the 12th rated offensive tackle in the class of 2024. He joins three other offensive line commits that Oregon has for their 2024 class. Fox Crater, who you know has been getting a lot or for for a brief point in time, I think really was getting a lot of buzz about you know what he flipped, what he stayed at Oregon, all that sort of stuff. I don't think his recruitment is done yet, but Fox Crater, the four star, and then a pair of three stars, Devin Brooks and and Trent Ferguson. Brooks is the guy who's from uh, Clackamas. So two commits from in the state of Oregon, Westland and Clackamas, schools that I as a Lake Oswego grad know very, very well. So I, I think the other thing to remember with with this class too and you know where they sit right now with the Jaquan McCroy commitment is they are not going to be done recruiting offensive linemen. I don't think they should be. I don't think there's ever such a thing, especially in the portal era. But even if you predate the portal era, there, was n- there has never been such a thing as too many offensive linemen for a couple of reasons. Number one, they get hurt a lot. It, it just it happens, right? I mean, Alex Forsyth was in and out of the game last year. Guess what? Offensive line was still elite because Ryan Walk was able to slide over, play center. They put in Jackson Powers Johnson, okay? That's where recruiting came into play. That helped Oregon tremendously. The second thing is offensive line, I think at some level, feels even more of a crapshoot you know, for the most part, not entirely, right? You have your Connerlys, Panay Sewells, who are going to come in and play right away. But but even Connerly didn't start immediately. 
you have those sorts of guys, but it feels like you want to have as many capable bodies in there as possible so that they can push each other. They're almost always developmental prospects on the offensive line, except, you know, in, in certain unique cases, of course. But I think that this is a guy who's got intriguing physical upside. I mean, 6'8", 365, you just don't, you don't see that. You just don't see that very often. So Oregon in the 2023 recruiting class took four offensive linemen. But that was with a pretty loaded returning unit that was full of experience and talent and most of all experience. So I think they still will be a little more aggressive here. I don't know if they would go beyond six. I think that'd probably be where they, they would most likely cap out given the, the the portal, the guys they have, guys who are you know maybe coming along uh, in the pipeline along the offensive line. I think they're mostly okay there. But I definitely expect them to continue going after Brandon Baker, another name to follow. His you know timeline, according to Brian and, and Max Torres as well, has been on the show talking about him, is that his timeline is probably a little bit more drawn out. Brandon Baker's, that is. That's the number one offensive tackle in the 2024 class, and Oregon's going to have a shot there. And just because you have McCroy doesn't mean you don't still go after Baker. They absolutely will, and I think they they absolutely should. But the ramifications on on the class for Oregon, where they sit in 2024, were not hugely pronounced when Jaquan McCroy committed. Doesn't mean that he isn't a really, really nice commitment to land, but the ramifications were, eh, they were kind of minimal. Solid is how I would describe it. And there's a reason that, that it should be and is, by me, described as such. That reason's coming after we talk about FanDuel, because that is America's number one sports book. You can take your first swing at betting Major League Baseball on FanDuel and get 10 times your first bet amount in bonus bets, up to $200. That's right, just bet $20, bucks, you will land $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. That's $200 you can spend betting everything from the money line to the over-under to who you think is going to hit the first home run on an app that's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Sign up today, visit fanduel.com slash locked on and check out America's number one sports book. Get up to $200 in bonus bets. That's fanduel.com slash locked on. Fanduel, official partner of Major League Baseball. Every day is now. That is the sound of me completing the second segment sip. That nice little audio pause there, which means we're ready to keep things going. Essential to every show. Just as all you everydayers out there are essential to the show. And I thank you very much for watching, listening, liking, subscribing, commenting, rating, reviewing, all these sorts of things. So the McCroy commitment did, I think, a good thing for Oregon, which is keep them at number eight nationally in the recruiting rankings. And look, Oregon pulled in a top 10 class in 2023. That's what we need to compile. History tells you you want to compete for and win a national championship. You have to stack top five, top 10 glasses on top of one another over and over and over again. And Oregon is in a good position to do that right now. And McCroy, I think, did help keep them at number eight because there have been some other commitments. USC is red hot. I mean, like scarlet red hot or whatever they call. I think they call it scarlet. Or is that Stanford? I don't know. Anyway, one of those schools in California with red uses scarlet. They're really hot on the recruiting trail. They've leapfrogged Oregon, which is not technically a Pac-12 recruiting battle now. That's technically us going at it with a Big Ten school. That's the way it's listed on 24-7. But Oregon's class sits at number eight nationally. I think McCroy helped keep them there. They're behind Penn State, Notre Dame, USC, Michigan, Florida, Ohio State, and Georgia. Now, who is missing from that list? Yeah, yeah. 
No Alabama here. Well, certainly Alabama's in the top 10. No, because they're just ahead of LSU, Tennessee, Clemson, Texas A&M, and had to make sure my voice was extra clear for this, Stanford. Yeah, that Stanford, those Cardinal, that team, that school. Pretty hot in the recruiting trail right now. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. So the reason Oregon has to keep their pedal to the metal on the recruiting front, though, is you have schools like Alabama who already have three five-stars committed, but they don't have the volume of some classes like the Ducks do, right? So they're going to rise, and you figure Alabama or Texas, schools like that, Texas A&M even maybe, right? Tennessee could start a full-court press on the recruiting trail, start landing commitments, It's still early in the cycle. Oregon is in a good position, but by no means have they locked up a top 10 recruiting class nationally for the 2024 cycle. But getting guys like Elijah Rutschling or one day a Williams Maneri or a Brandon Baker or a Justin Williams, those sorts of guys help rise you in the rankings, help bring you up, and they help keep you there and make it harder for other teams to leapfrog you in that sense. And that's where Oregon uh, wants to be. And McCroy, by the way, why I suspect that, you know, if he hadn't committed, Oregon might have seen their class drop a bit is he's the fifth highest rated recruit in the class. His 24-7 sports composite rating is 93.16. That's quite good. It's pretty darn high. So I suspect that if you didn't have that in there, it might be a, a touch below. I'm sure there's a mathematical calculation to all of that. But bottom line, you know, just to kind of summarize the McCroy commitment here. Big time physical upside, good place to pull a recruit from, good schools, not like the greatest of, of the greatest necessarily, but good to really good schools to beat out for this kid. And I think he makes a lot of sense and is a really, really encouraging sign for, for Elite Terry there. So um interested to see what happens with Dewan Riggs today and if we need to start like breaking down his film and all that sort of stuff that would be for tomorrow's show so subscribe wherever you're listening or watching if you haven't already he's committing today we got the five-star kicker from West Lynn but other names to watch Elijah Rushing Kamar Muthudi Justin Williams just keep keep an eye on those guys especially Rushing who's supposed to announce later this week and Oregon has been in a good spot there does not mean they're always going to be in a good spot there and that other schools aren't after that kid. They absolutely will be. And Oregon's got to keep the full court press on. But I don't think I need to tell that to Dan Lanning. I think he's pretty aware. So uh, let's shift topics here and get to the mailbag, which you can always be a part of, whoever you are, wherever you come from, Oregon fan, non-Oregon fan, you're welcome to enter the mailbag. YouTube comments or hit me up on Twitter at smalls underscore 55 or at locked on ducks. DMs and mentions wide open as always. I was talking about Oregon's schedule on Friday. This led to a question from John. I roughly agree with your splits on our road game win-loss record. Injuries can be an obvious determining factor and thankfully we go to Washington in week seven after a bye. Washington also goes into that game after a bye, which is what's going to like make the anticipation mount. That's going to be a big, big game. Still a tall task, but it's in reach. It would be great to break down the factors that go into a home field advantage and give a ranking of 2023 stadiums that will be tough. So he's asking for a 12 through 1 list or a 1 through 12 list, depending on how you want to go about that, of the toughest places to play and win as a road team in the Pac-12. We're definitely going to do that. But the first part of it, the biggest factor that makes a great home field advantage is you. And the 
50,000 or however many other thousand your stadium can hold the tens of thousands of fans that show up and don't just go to the game don't just watch but are rabidly passionate are wild crazy screaming going nuts every third down every big play you make the team feel it that is the number one factor the momentum that plays into it the way it can fire up your defense There is something to be said about taking the air out of the crowd and that being a big boost for a team. Absolutely is. But history shows you and Vegas shows you that playing at home, right? It's not just about waking up in your own bed, not having to travel and deal with, you know, being in a different environment, dealing with a different routine or anything like that. It is about the home crowd. The other things are a factor too. But if you are asking Vegas to set a line, they're going to ask you where the game's being played. Is it at home? Is it on the road? Or is it neutral site? And the lines will vary. The teams are the same, but the lines will vary for a reason. And the crowd is the number one factor. But the other things are too, right? If you have to wake up the day before, go through a day of travel, that can wear on people a little bit. Mentally, it can get you out of your routine to be in a different environment, to be in you know a hotel room and all that sort of stuff. Going on the road, not the easiest thing in the world. But does kind of depend on on where you go. So why don't I start at number 12? And these are my personal rankings. And I host Locked On Pack 12, so I talk about these schools a decent amount. But I'm curious as to your thoughts as well and whether you think I am off on a particular uh, on, on a particular ranking here. Now, this is for 2023. The toughest places, or I guess I'm ranking them in order of the easiest because I'm going to go 12 to 1. But I'm going to go 12th being the easiest place to win. Number one, hardest place to win for 2023. That is factoring in the home field advantage that exists there, where the game is being played. If you're at a place like Boulder, for instance, got some altitude. That can wear guys out quicker than if they're at a place like California, which is at sea level. Or if you're down in the desert, it can get super hot, right? All those factors come into play, but also the caliber of team that you're going to be playing there. So that's how that's how I am assessing this list. So let's start at number 12. Easiest place probably to get a win this year, the farm. That would be Stanford's home stadium. They are rebuilding. They're going to take a while to rebuild. They weren't very good last year. And when Stanford isn't good, they don't get a lot of fans there. So Stanford comes in number 12. Number 11, I'm going with Sun Devil Football Stadium down at Arizona State. Now, that is probably going to rub some Oregon fans the wrong way because of the mm, misfortunes, shall we say, that the Ducks have had there over the course of the last 10, 15 years from time to time. But I am not supremely high on the Sun Devils this year. They have Drew Pine as their starting quarterback. Jaden Rashada, a a highly rated four-star recruit, is kind of waiting in the wings. They might have quarterback questions. First year, first time head coach in, in Kenny Dillingham. I think it's a rebuilding year for Arizona State. Their win total reflects that at just uh, a four and a half. I think they're more likely to be four and eight than six and six. But I mean, maybe those surprises, right? Maybe you you never know. There, I did love their defensive coordinator hire in Brian Ward from Washington State. I will I will give them that. But we've also seen over the years, uh, particularly last year, if Arizona State struggles in the early going. And they've got, you know, a big game at home against Oklahoma State in week two. If they lose that, if they were, you know, to start uh, you know, one and three or two and four or something like that, the fans are not going to show up in huge droves. So by the time Oregon especially gets down there, 
it might not be the most daunting environment. But if Oregon's really highly ranked, then you know maybe they show out. It's not that I've never seen Sun Devil Stadium packed. It's just that this year I, I don't have hugely high expectations for the team. And typically, you know, at least from what I saw last year, they were kind of hit and miss with, with attendance. Next one. Folsom Field at number 10. That is the home of the Colorado Buffaloes. Some people would say I have this too low. This is more reflective of what the team is probably going to be this year, which according to Vegas is battling to not be the worst team in the Pac-12. No, I don't think they will be. I think that's going to be Stanford. I think Colorado will be just maybe a touch better. They brought in a lot more talent via the portal, but they still have a long way to go. Dion's still got to prove his chops. He's made some good hires, but the team still has a ways to go, particularly in the trenches. Their win total is three and a half for a reason. Their schedule is tough, and that's a part of it, but they are not going to be expected to do very much. TCU, which should be like an eight, like a seven, eight, or nine win team this year, they're about a 20 point home favorite against the Buffs. Like, this is still going to be a rebuilding season. Now, the difference between Sun Devil Stadium and, and the farm is that even when they're not very good, those fans show up in a big way. And they, they deserve full credit for that because they do big time. So I'll go Folsom Field 10. Number nine, uh, Memorial Stadium at Cal. Don't consistently pack the place. Not super rabid. Not as rabid as Colorado for sure. I put them above the Buffs home field though because I think Cal's going to be a better football team than Colorado this year. I also think that Arizona could be decent this year. Their fans can get kind of crazy. So I've got them at number seven. Now, I think Arizona is kind of an interesting team this year. They could be a spoiler. They could be, I don't think a Pac-12 dark horse, but they could be a bowl eligible team this season. And if they are, that's going to continue to make their fans more and more excited and they can get pretty crazy. We all remember 2009, Jeremiah Masoli to Ed Dixon with two seconds to go. I think it was, gosh, oh, that was an awesome game. I remember exactly where I was watching that game. It was one of those impactful moments. Uh, next above that, the Rose Bowl at UCLA. I think UCLA will be a good but not great team this year. The Rose Bowl is too big of a place for them to play. They can't pack it. They're not super loud. Frankly, I probably have this too high on the list. It's just more of, of, of a respect for what I think UCLA is going to be as a football team this year. But I don't think that's a particularly tough place to go in and get a win. UCLA was good in 2021. Fresno State went in there and beat them. Like It's not... Like their home field advantage is just okay. Their attendance numbers are not as bad as you think, but they don't sell out the Rose Bowl. They don't have, you know, hugely uh, big, big fans or anything like that, but they'll be a decent team. Next one. This is when we really start getting into legit home field advantages this year. Martin Stadium. That's where Washington State plays. We saw a year ago. Those fans are loud. That team is good. Not great, but good. Right, they've got a win total of six and a half this year, which I think is about right. Six, seven win team for Washington State. That's what they should be this season. But those fans are on top of you, and those fans are going crazy. It's the only game in town, and we have had some tough times up there. We've seen it happen. We almost had it a season ago. Yeah, that one's in there at number six. Number five, Husky Stadium. Washington should be a Pac-12 contender. Washington gets good crowds out there. It's a beautiful setting for a stadium. My goodness. Oh, it's the, with the water in the background. I'm a huge water and boats guy. So like, I'm, I'm just partial to, to the views out there a little bit, but I've got him at number five. I might've had them higher, except I've seen a lot of years in which Washington has had many home stumbles. So I put them just kind of a, a notch below. Like, yeah, those have come sometimes in the backdrop of a tough season, but 
I think overall, it's a good environment, right? Michigan State certainly learned that a year ago when they were ranked number 11th and Washington kind of ran them out of the building. That, well, threw, the, threw them out of the building, they, you know, because Washington threw the ball a bunch. But uh, I'd say Husky Stadium, number five. LA Coliseum, number four. Not like the loudest place in the Pac-12 by any measure, but they have Caleb Williams and Lincoln Riley. That's going to be a tough place to play. And they're going to be buzzing for their last year in the pack. Number three, Reister Stadium. Only one team has won at Reister Stadium in the last two seasons. And unfortunately, it wasn't us. It was USC, and they should have lost. It's tough. Autzen Stadium, number two. And I have Rice Eccles, number one. Why do I have Autzen two and not one? Because the last time that Utah lost at home with fans actually in the stands and packing that place was... I think it was like 2019, 2018. They have been a dominant home team. And Oregon, you know, lost their home winning streak, which was very, very long. It was like 23 games when when Washington got us there at the end of season ago, which is why I have it at number two, because it is supremely loud. Oregon plays very well there, but Utah's is just better right now. I think Utah is the toughest place to win in the Pac-12 at this point in time. But good question. Love drawing on the Pac-12 knowledge there. All right, I need to, hold on, just need to refresh a bit. All right, we're ready. Uh, closing it out. This from Kevin. When Bo Nix leaves after this season, Ty should be the front runner for starting quarterback in 2024 with Novoset coming in second string and either Van Buren or Moga fourth string. Third and fourth string, it means. If Thompson plays for two more years after this season, then how do you think Will Stein will utilize Van Buren and Moga after Ty is gone? Do you think it'll be one starter that starts and plays the majority of the games or will Stein use both? as rotation quarterbacks throughout every game, since they are both coming in the same class, it would be interesting to see how Stein uses them both. So if Ty were to start in 2024, that would, it's an interesting question to, to say the least. There are only about 50 different ways this can go. And I can promise you for all you everydayers out there, who are, are, are committed to the grind and committed to the show, I appreciate you very much. I'm just telling you right now, once this season ends, hopefully it's grand and glorious, but once this season ends and we get into the offseason, the quarterback talk is going to be rampant because there's going to be so much to get into. So my general theory here with Van Buren and Moga, who are the 2024 incoming true freshmen for next year, I doubt both stay on the roster for a long time. That's just my guess. It's the portal era. I don't fault the kids for that. I respect that they're coming in together and they're going to push each other to compete and be the best that they can be. I do not expect them as a fan to remain on the roster long into the future. So Ty Thompson was class of 2021 and he played just a few games, but he redshirted. 2022 backup 2023 backup so he could play for two more years if he starts in 2024 and 2025 i would suspect that might push novasad to transfer but he could also utilize a red shirt too and these guys can you know the art of the red shirt becoming a little bit lost i think in our minds because of the portal and understandably so but it's still a factor it's still a way for guys to get an extra year of eligibility and still gain experience of being a backup and it, and now the NCAA made a rule a while back that I really liked which is you can play in four games or fewer and have a red shirt I think that's a great rule I think that's a great rule for teams I think that's a great rule for kids as well so I I, I feel like with the quarterbacks 
one is going to end up transferring? I don't know which one. It's way too early, right? If you just looked at the star rating, you'd say, oh, well, it's going to be uh, uh, Van Buren's going to be the starter. Well, Mariota was only three-star recruit, and so was Justin Herbert. So I think it's too early to make that determination. I think both have real upside with their athletic ability. I would never want to see a two-quarterback system. I'm not a fan. I, I just, you can get too predictable offensively and Maybe I'm more traditionalist, but you don't see it often. And when you do, it's generally for teams that are kind of in disarray at the quarterback position, that don't have certainty, that don't have clarity, that don't have a player who you know you want to have taking the ball on every snap. Because think about every great Oregon offense. Have you ever thought like, oh man, I wish they would put this other quarterback in there sometimes? Like last year when Bo Nix was tearing it up in the Heisman hunt and setting the Oregon single season completion record. Did you ever once think, Oh man, I wish they had a package for Ty Thompson. Well, they put in Ty for a couple or for, you know, one snap in a, you know, close competitive game and the handoff exchange Dante Thornton got fumbled taken back to the house for a touchdown. So, I want one guy to emerge. I don't really care who that is. I'm curious as to who that will end up being one day, but I want it to be whoever's going to give Oregon the best chance to win. It could be Ty Thompson. Austin Novoselic could be ready by next year. Heck, maybe one of the freshmen come in and surprise us. I doubt that, given that Thompson will be entering uh, year four of college football, Novasad year two, just a lot of advantages there. And it's not as if those two are untalented guys. Now we know what Ty needs to work on. And, you know, Novasad, you know, we don't really know. He's kind of an enigma at this point, but because we just saw a few snaps in the spring game. But I, I thought there was some uh, decent upside there from, from what we saw in, you know, brief glimpses. But, I don't want to see two quarterbacks, you know, interchanging and, you know, like, oh, I hope we put this guy in the field. I hope we put that guy in the field. Like, eh. I'm, I'm just not super into that personally. So I think that one of them ends up transferring one day in the future. But when that'll be, that kind of depends. That depends on what happens with the other guys. Because what if ties the starter next year and Novosad transfers? Well, suddenly you have two guys there who could be the second and third string. And maybe they feel that they can, you know, work their way up at that point in time. I think that's all, you know, something that we won't, we don't have enough information right now to make concrete predictions on, but one day we will. It'll certainly be fascinating, but I think for Will Stein, you're taking everything year by year. You have Bo Nix this year. You got to build the best chemistry and relationship you can, understand, get him to understand what you want to do offensively, how to execute, how you want things to operate to maximize the offense's potential. And then worry about all that for next year, right? And have you know have a backup prepared, get ties ready as you can. Uh, if if God forbid Bo were to go down with an injury, but going forward, I, I think Will Stein is focused on fall of twenty twenty three and making a good impression with us as Duck fans. Appreciate everyone listening. I will see you next time. And until then, hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.